Welcome to the Leaders Who Care, a podcast powered by Dynamis Group. We are here to give the stage and support to those committed to create a positive and lasting impact way beyond the profits and margins, the leaders of the world who care for others and serve a bigger purpose. Join us on the journey of creating a better, more caring world. And now to your host, Marian Timalkov. Happy Wednesday, dear audience, and uh, really welcome on our 98th episode. Today we have uh, a, a really a, a guest of honor, someone who's committed her life of making a difference and uh, helping the lives of millions of people and spreading really that knowledge, awareness, and helping so many in a very important topic that uh, really more and more leaders are starting to get acquainted, and this is the power of neurodiversity, understanding the difference and how important is that. And uh, I'm so grateful to welcome Professor Amanda Kirby. Thank you so much for being with us today and uh, really um, talking about your your passion, your vision of uh, neurodiversity and uh, uh, really grateful to have you today. Thank you. That's very nice. And thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here on a cold warning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, you're joining us today from uh, Cardiff, I understand, yeah, so uh, yeah. it's a little cold in the UK. Uh, yeah, this, uh, it's bright, it's okay. <laughs> this morning, but uh, we'd love to talk about really uh, um, some important aspects of, of what you do so we can hopefully warm people's hearts and, and, and share some some real uh, useful information and, and knowledge today. Well, first of all, um, I'm sure more and more leaders are getting acquainted with neurodiversity, but from uh, a business perspective, uh, what does it mean to to a, a leader, a CEO, um, really to uh, invest or understand the, the principles or concepts of neurodiversity? What's, where do we start even uh, on, on that topic? Well, I think the first thing really, Marin, is to think about what's the, what, what do we mean when we're talking about neurodiversity? So if we start with that, and then what do we do if when we understand it? So neurodiversity is about us all. It's the way we all think, move, process, communicate, act, hear, see differently. And it's, it's really, it's about a social construct, that the way that businesses, uh, society is set up, is it does what you do well if you fit in the middle. If you travel through the bell curve and you travel and you can read okay, see okay, talk okay, move okay, you'll do quite okay. But if you veer from that because you've got talents or challenges, you'll find life is much harder. And for leaders, it's understanding who they're missing out on when they don't recognize that. So if we do things always in a certain way, what we will do is exclude 20, 30% of the population by design. And I think neurodiversity is understanding that if we're inclusive by design, we flatten the bell curve and we allow more of that talent to get in and we allow more people to stay in work and optimise performance, optimise productivity. And that's good for everybody. It's good for society. It's good if you run a business. You know, it, it is good for the world. So this is why thinking about neurodiversity is so important, particularly for leadership. No, very important point you're raising here. So that's directly uh, linked to many aspects. So 
um, if anything, that could help the business grow. Uh, it could help the business uh, be more, have a better retention rate. It can have the business have a more productivity. And um, uh, so how can leaders uh, start, maybe if they're not yet started or aware of this uh, journey, mm-hmm. um, what are the low hanging fruits? What, what are the, the really things that can be done fairly quickly? I, I think the more we wrap things in business as usual, the less you have to think about it. So yeah. moving away from we're doing something for autism, we're doing something for ADHD, we do something for dyslexia, we do something for dyspraxia, because leaders can't be experts in every condition. Like if you're a leader in a tech business, it's not your business to know about asthma, diabetes, ADHD and dyslexia. It is your business, whatever business you're in, is to ensure that you are attracting talent in. So one of the things is, quick wins for leaders is really, first of all, to get buy-in to say this is important. So that actually understanding the people in your businesses and your organizations, you will have people who are neurodivergent already that veer away from that bell curve. So one is recognition. Two is then buy-in. So saying this is important. This is an important initiative for us to be inclusive and think about universal design. So senior leadership, C-suite, so to saying this is, it's not our thing we're doing this year. We are going to, it's the thing we do every year, all the time, because it makes good sense to do so. And then it's starting to think about your recruitment processes, your onboarding processes, and really thinking about how do we ensure we're always inclusive, right? So who are we closing the door to? And the more we start seeing that, well, actually, if we think about people who might be really good at communication, then are we encouraging when we're recruiting to show those skills? If we're having somebody who's got really good technical skills, are we measuring their communication skills when that's not important? So are we actually measuring what we want to see when we're actually recruiting on boarding? So that's really useful. And then you can do other things. I think it's about something which is around everyone is compassionate leadership and that starts with the top that says that you know um, awareness and being non-judgmental so it's it's recognizing that when somebody says to you that they are dyslexic or they're autistic or someone with autism that sharing that information might be an incredibly difficult moment in that person's life. You know, you might have to be really brave to come forward because your your past experiences haven't been very good. So being a non-judgmental, curious and compassionate leader will be a message that permeates through your business. And that can make a huge difference to people feeling safe to have more of those conversations because fear... And bad past experiences means people don't come to you. And if you hear this is a company, this is an organization that allows that to happen, you're going to get people coming to you. You're going to attract more talent as well. So it's a win-win situation. No, absolutely. And I think um, it's not easy, especially knowing the past of how leaders have dealt with these situations. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, really some examples, maybe of organizations, or I'm sure you talk to a lot of different companies, both on the private and the public sector. Mm-hmm. Um, give us some uh, success stories or some examples that have been uh, quite positive. So I think what I'm starting to see is, a, I think it is a shift, a mindset shift, where we've got organizations where 
We've had an organization like Admiral Insurance that have invested in their people. They've got training. They've got a bank of individuals there who, if you are within the organization, you can go to them. You can have a conversation. I've seen this in the police force. I'm starting to see it in justice settings as well, where we're having a much more open conversation to say this is okay. And what you start to see is leadership going, well, actually, did you know I've got a child who has or, or, or you know, or, oh, this lad sounds like me. Because the other bit is not everybody's coming with a ticket or a label. They might have grown up with challenges they might have had, or they might be seeing they've got children and they're now going, I think this is me, you know. And certainly we see females in their 30s, 40s and 50s who never got diagnosed in childhood because we were looking through a sort of a male lens. We're now going, well, I think this is me. So being able, we're seeing organisations much more a growth in things like employee resource groups or affinity groups. We're seeing in some organisations um, really good where they're having a bank of people who are being trained like spec savers, where they've got people who are trained who and then can cascade that message throughout the organisation. These organisations are saying this is important. We're investing in it to have a lasting impact. And you can start to see that, you know, Gen Zs want where they want companies who care, you know, um, and we've seen the sort of quiet quitting happening over the last six to 12 months. And that's why compassionate leadership is so important. It really is. This isn't a, a something for Christmas. This is for life. You know? <laughs> you know, this is a lasting impact that you can have on your organization. Well, often leaders do not realize that probably 20, 30 percent of their workforce is neurodiverse, but they without realizing or knowing that they are, and because it's not something that was even brought up as a, as a topic. No. And uh, what you're saying is by starting to take care of your people and be more aware of them with that non-judgmental and compassionate approach, starting to maybe make some reasonable adjustments to, you know, to uh, what does reasonable adjustments, you know, uh, could look like for, for like something in the office or in a, in a company Sure. So I think the first thing is, I think it's about changing the narrative a little bit. And uh, a reasonableness is a test of the size of the organisation. It's a legal test. I actually think we need to be going into the workplace for everybody, because it shouldn't be you only get it if you're bad enough, right? That's what we've had before. You get it if you have a label, you get it if you're bad enough. If our mentality is business as usual, and we're wrapping that around the whole business, then we start to say, okay, each person in our business, how do we optimize your talent? Have you got a skills gap? Is there a training need? Is there some support that you require? And an adjustment is very much like the things we do. It can be closed captioning. It can be using, having hybrid conversations. It can be understanding my communication needs. It might be an up, down desk. It like, might be me, like me, I'm short, so I've got a step underneath my, my computer desk to, to get me in the right position and to be in the right position. It could be using software like text-to-speech, speech-to-text. It could be about training the people around you to communicate effectively with me as well. So mm -hmm. I might be somebody who needs an email header, clearly with content, color coding with what's important, what's not could be around attitudes of the people around me that when I might be very sensitive to smell and so somebody brings a, an egg sandwich or a, um, a, 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 some food that's got a very strong smell and it's upsetting, it could be about having those conversations as a team, how do we work best? 
one organization I went into recently and they said, well, we have the radio on in the background in the office. 70% of people really love it. So I went, well, what about the 30% who really can't focus? So again, it's about how do we work effectively? Adjustments are about how do we affect effectively as a, a team, as a group of people? And that might be in that case that if you want the radio on, have headphones and listen to the radio. But if you don't want headphones, you don't want the radio on because you're distracting, an adjustment might be cutting out the noise using headphones. So that's what adjustments mean. And what we see is if we go to, in the UK, we've got the Equality Act 2010, we're seeing increased numbers of cases coming through. And I, I prefer carrots to sticks. You know, I think it's a better approach. But businesses do need to make an anticipatory approach. They need to assume 20 to 30 percent of people in their workforce are going to be neurodivergent. Mm. So, again, we need to sort of the Pareto principle. We need to be thinking about the 20 percent, not just the 80 percent. No, thank you for giving those examples. These are very often simple things that can be done and acted. Uh, and, and if the leader uh, obviously sets the intention, of course, how do you then, if it's a large organization, get the buying in of the middle management? Because the middle management is often the backbone and they're the ones who can make or break an initiative uh, as well. And, uh, and really, what are the kind of training programs or effective approaches for large organizations where they could deploy that at, uh, and maybe link that to some sort of behavioral incentive uh, for them to do it. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important. So managers don't have a conversation if they're worried about saying the wrong thing, you know, mm -hmm. using the wrong language, uh, not being able to give the right advice. So we, we've developed an e-learning program which allows you to train managers. But sometimes it's about having curious, being curious and respectful, two important words there. So, and that this is about everybody. So again, not about those people over there. So it's about being respectful and non-judgmental and saying, you've said that you've got ADHD. Tell me what that means to you. Tell me what, how you work your best. Tell me where you have challenges. So that, that means as a manager, I don't have to be an expert in ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism, dyscalculia, et cetera, et cetera. You're asking that person because two people in, the, in different jobs are going to need completely different sets of support. So if I'm a fire person, I'm running into a burning building, you can't give me a beige piece of paper and say, yeah, look at this, or use text-to-speech, because we can't do that in that situation, right? So actually, the manager, it's about problem solving, it's about finding out what works, and it's thinking about the individual and who they are, the task that person's got to do, and the environment they're in. And when we think about that, the individual, the tasks and the environment, you can then start to problem solve. And what I often find is in many organizations I go into, you've got some really great stuff there already. You know, sometimes it does not about spending loads of money. Most of the time, it really isn't about spending loads of money. It might be a quick check in with your manager, five minutes in the morning to know what I've got to do, five minutes at the end of the day to check that is there anything else? So it's those bit of communication, effective communication that can keep people in a job because rather than working on something and not getting it right and then presenting it down the line, high stakes, if you have low stakes, regular communication, you have much more effective to pick up, fine tune what that person's doing. Things like in a, an organization, I often I go and I go, do you have Microsoft Office? And they go, yeah, we do. 
well, what about, it's got speech to text, it's got text to speech, it's got immersive reading, it's got lots of accessible tools in there. You don't need to go out and buy loads of stuff, here it is. So have you got a glossary of terms in your business? Maybe using lots of acronyms, lots of organizations have like a whole language of their organization. Do you let your new starters know what those words are? So do you share that on your internet? So it's really engaging managers with, to enable them to have better conversations by understanding this is not them and it's not specialists. This is about good management. It's what managers do. You know, it's a bit like what leaders do. It's what managers do is optimizing the performance of your team. Absolutely, and I just think you should be a business as usual because. If you adopt those strategies, they, they, they work, they're very helpful for the whole workforce. And there's Everything. a massive, really uh, domino effect because the, then even the ones who are not necessarily neurodiverse, they see how you treat other people and they start to see, or they really care for the vulnerable. Then, then they very, and of course, the high performance pay attention, they, they really uh, often um, lead to a higher retention rate because they, they really appreciate that the company stands for something greater than just making money, of course. It's, it's about a really uh, how do you rise this matter and its importance um, on that. I mean, you started your uh, campaigning for neurodiversity 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. So I want to celebrate that. And, and uh, years ago, oh my God, probably very few people would even uh, be aware <laughs> of neurodiversity at that, at that time, you know. And, and uh, as a parent of, of neurodiverse child, and do you think uh, things have changed significantly, or is there still a lot of work to do since you know since we started? Um, so I, I think I'm I'm still a, I'm still a battler today. My you know my my son's 37. I've got neurodivergent grandchildren as well. Uh, if I look back, when he was going to school, one of the things was, I think some of the things have changed and things have improved. So I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. That's the first thing, that things will change and get better. But when he was, went to school, people, I was told he would grow out of it, whatever it was, right? Um, and I think one of the things we recognize is that neurodivergent traits don't just disappear on your 16th birthday with a birthday card, you know, gone now, like in a puff of smoke. So... <laughs> So, and a lot of the work that I did in the last 30 years was looking at emerging adulthood, what happened between 11 and 25, what happens as you move older. I'm really interested now, as I'm getting older, thinking about what happens when you're 50, 60, 70. So anybody interested in that? I'm interested in doing some research around that as well, about ageing. Um, so I, I, what I think is good, I think the language around neurodiversity is, is good. I think we've, we're moving away from a a deficit disorder model and we're recognizing starting to recognize that the reason why these genes exist is that they come with some strengths as well right and i think we didn't it was all about this is the list of things you can't do and i i think a lot of young people and adults grew up feeling shame feeling discriminated wanting to not share you know i i've got lots of adhd traits i can't see 20 years ago i would have been really reluctant as a doctor to tell my colleagues that i had adhd i think it might have been not good for the business you know to do so now i wouldn't have a problem with that at all well i don't have a problem with that at all you know because i think the way we frame neurodivergent traits is in a different light and we're recognizing these genes have stayed there for a really good reason in society. Otherwise, they would have been bred out. 
you know, and I think about my family. I come from a really neurodivergent family. And we've got musicians and accountants and we've got entrepreneurs. We've got, we've got, but we've also got individuals who are nonverbal, you know, on the autism spectrum and learning disabled as well. But we've got talents and, and strengths that, that there are reasons for this, but it comes with challenges. So I think the, the language change is really good because we went from developmental disorders, uh, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and that very negative framing to a much better language of let's look at talents and strengths. And I think, you know, five years ago, you and I would not be having this conversation. We are today. And I think that's brilliant, you know, and I'm seeing it in the justice system where nearly half, 30% of people certainly are neurodivergent and they've missed out on gaining a help and support because of adversity, not neurodiversity, because of adversity in their lives. And we're having those conversations today. We didn't have them 20 years ago. So I, I you know, as I said, I'm an optimist. Um, I want to I want to retire eventually <laughs> one day that we don't need to have these conversations ultimately, but I think we will do for quite a bit longer. Well, look, uh, absolutely. That's grateful and, you know, to, to have you and, and congratulations on being awarded a Lifetime Achiever Award, the Inclusive <laughs> Award. Uh, truly inspirational how much you've done over the years and that lifetime uh, traction you know from the earlier days to, to even aging is, is just phenomenal it's just really rare and, and it's uh, wonderful to see and i think it's a great service to many and uh, um uh, it's it's really uh, really honor and respect here and uh, having said all this how do you take care of yourself how do you keep going <laughs> How do I take care? So I, I do. I think I'm sort of. I think I can't take care of myself some of the time. You know, I think that. So I'm, I'm. I'm sort of good some of the time. I go for a walk every morning. That is, and I started this um, in COVID. Actually, we started together with my husband, and we go out. We have got fields around us. Very lucky. We live on the edge of the city, and I go out for a walk every morning. We've done it. Wind, rain, snow, it doesn't matter what the weather, we'll dress up and we go out. And that's been really good. I love cooking. So um, I love being with my family. Uh, you know, um, nothing better than cooking together and sitting down for a meal together. Uh, I cherish my friends. I cherish my family. And uh, I think those are things that give me the greatest pleasure. Um, I'm, I can be silly. Uh, my grandchildren, the most wonderful thing is to be silly, to have fun, to, to see the funny things in life. Uh, so I think those are things that are important. I read. I'm a voracious reader. Um, and I love that as well. And I've started painting and drawing and doing those sort of things again that I haven't done for a while and occasionally I play very bad saxophone but not very often at the moment because I don't have a lot of time to do so but my family uh, you know it's it's keeping rooted to the things that are important and I my friends some of my friends I've known all my life my close friends 50 60 70 years well not 70 because I'm not 70 but 50 or 60 years I've got really good friends I've known all those times so that's amazing really you know so cherish what you've got around you because the good things are usually small um and and i think things like going for a walk i went to west wales last weekend and saw the sea and walked along the beach and i think having all walks is incredible seeing seeing nature is really helpful for all of us i think wonderful and uh yeah thank you for sharing please do uh, take care of continuously of 
keeping that. And I think you give us a really good reminder that uh, we often have all these goals. And of course, we never say people often not satisfied with things and which is nothing wrong with that. But as long as you're grateful and cherish and you take continuously care of yourself and everyone around you, right? mm. uh, you start to appreciate that uh, uh, success, how you rise matter and, and success is uh, often chases you by who you become, not uh, just being a full purpose of, of being successful, have more money. It's not the fulfillment is more important, really, that too. really is. Yeah. And really, I think self-care isn't selfish. I think sometimes it's a, one something I have to remind myself as well is sometimes you put yourself at the end, but actually, you know, having time out, having time to relax, those sort of things, space to go out and do things is as important to recharge your batteries as well. Absolutely. Having a neurodiverse children and grandchildren, um, I'm really uh, all open this topic for families that, mm -hmm. that, that have uh, neurodiverse children and often they may go through some tremendous challenges with the system, with, with what they are like you have, which is one reason that have inspired you. And uh, um, what would be your advice? You know, first of all, if, if families are really getting stressed out or don't know what to do with their children, they're seeing no progress and that's continuously every day is bothering them and, and just starting to impact on, on their even way of thinking or health or mental health. You know, what, what, what is your uh, kind of really from having so much experience in raised children and grandchildren just to give them that longer perspective of what to expect, what's coming and how to deal with this in an effective way? Sure. So I think number one, the as a parent, we will all be consistently inconsistent and recognize that. So give yourself space and time. It's a long journey being a parent. I think so give yourself time to recharge because it is it's hard work, you know, and if you've got a neurodivergent child, then you are often having to battle and fight the systems as well to get the support you require. Gather information, try and gather the information from about your child and document it so you're not having to repeat it again and again. We just launched children's profile um, 10 days ago to help with that, you know, put everything in one place so you can start because repeating your story. I remember going from place to place, seeing isthenologists, so, you know, you see pediatrician and psychologist and occupational therapist and having to tell the story again and again. So document it. Keep a document. OK. I think the second thing, the third thing really is I can't, couldn't have imagined my, my son today is the most wonderful man. He really is. He's a father. He's got one child with another one on the way. Uh, he's got a wonderful wife, lovely, lovely family, good job. I couldn't have imagined him, how he was going to be when he was 10 or 11. Okay. So don't limit the potential of your children, you know, but obviously you need to be realistic. But children change and grow, and 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 it's finding things that are interesting for your children. Find the things that they like and they're motivated with, and use those to build up their skills. So it could be they're interested in Minecraft. Okay, if that's what they're interested in, try and teach them literacy, numeracy, other things around Minecraft. Count the Minecraft, you know, whatever it is. All right. So use those things as a motivation to get with everywhere. Sometimes small steps are better than big steps. And I often think about uh, when my son was going to university, he did, in the time he did a, an HNC, a higher national certificate, then a diploma, then a degree, we did small steps. And I think sometimes with our children is small steps still get you to the place where they need to be. 
And so just those very small steps can add up. So don't forget that as well. And I think the last piece of advice probably is think about times of transition and plan early. And I think this is topical for this time of the year. We know every year that December the 25th is Christmas. It doesn't change. It's the same day every year. Yet we go, oh, we're in a panic. We're not ready. We've got so much to do. Yet we've had a year to get ready for December the 25th, right? So we also know when children are going to move school. We know when they're going to move from start school, move to secondary school, leave school. So plan ahead of time for times of transition. And that can really make a difference. So, and think about independent living skills. Eventually, you know, you want your children, if they can, to leave home and live independently. Start early with these small things that will get them to become independent so that you're not waiting till they go to university or college or out to work and they've never washed their clothes. They've never made a snack. They've never, that's a bit late, start early. So start early, even with a young child, they can make themselves a sandwich. They can get themselves a drink. They can get themselves undressed and dressed. They can put their clothes away. So I would also start start early with the things that are going to be important for longer term. This is so encouraging and what you're saying. And sometimes it could be very simple things like how to tie up their shoelaces, yeah. how, to, uh, um, how to go to the... If it's a young child, you know, baby to be independent to go, you know, to go to a toilet, on its well, own. Exactly. It's just re really those little things that that sometimes I wish there was like a, even as a parent and you know to have like a video or something that teaches you on those little skill, little kind of micro uh, teachings, you know, uh, yeah. and important because these are skills that you know teach your child a skill, right? And and this is right. Yeah. Uh, how to even shake hand? I mean, just like a simple thing. How, how to speak up? I mean, so they are aware and teach them, and you can do that, like you know, you know, probably when you're in the zone or when the child is more relaxed. But you know, it's it's just great to hear that that you were, yeah. Think, wow, I didn't know how my son will turn out. Now he's just so he's a father. He's he's doing so well, and that, that's really encouraging. So that this gives hope on on that. And he said, start early, really. Um, Plan for the future. Be hopeful. Be be really un understand the, the. Be curious of what their motivation is and how to build the skills around this. Um, what else? If they want more advice or more severe cases, you know what what would be the process that you you, you could advise? So one of the things we we've got children's profile which looks across cognitive areas, seven cognitive yep. areas. So what that does is allow you to have practical strategies because each child not be label led, be child centered. I think that's the first thing. So yeah. understand your strengths and understand your challenges. There are common things that often parents say are really challenging. And that doesn't matter whether are coming wherever they're coming from. These are common things that we all experience. So sleep is something that if you don't get sleep, it affects the whole family. So really good sleep habits really make a difference. So your children going to bed at the same time of night when they're drowsy, they're sleepy, getting up at the same time. If you've got teenagers, even younger children, sometimes we do, and over Christmas, this is an important thing. So sometimes our children go to bed much later, they sleep in much later, and then they've got to go back to school. And it's a bit like you're jet lagged. So if you've been going to bed later, two or three hours later in the holidays, and you've got to now get back to go to a school, you need to start preparing your child to go back. 
three or four days before they're going back, back to those routines that they're going to need when they go back to school. Otherwise, they for the first week, they are going to be horrible going to school. You know, they really are, because they're going to feel jet lagged. They're not going to be able to focus, not going to be able to attend. So I think that that's useful. In the holidays, sometimes you can do some of the strategies that you can't do when the pressure of work, the pressure of school. So you could practice some of these things like putting your clothes out the night before, packing your bag, practicing things like shoelace tying and buttoning and unbuttoning when you're not under pressure and you can do it as a game. So I think that's the other thing. Make it fun because kids will engage if it's fun. I think the other bit is over this sort of period of time is really also don't have expectations of your children which are too much. So sometimes we go, family's coming around, friends are coming down, you've got to sit at the table for the meal and your child can't stay at the table for longer than 15, 20 minutes. Don't make them sit there for an hour and you know what's going to happen is <laughs> explosion, right? So don't expect more than your child can do. So it might be they come for, to, to have some food and then they go and you call them back when you're ready. What it means is your child can manage. They don't get upset. You don't get upset. Grandma who's sitting at the table doesn't tell you off as a parent as well because it has a ripple effect. It really does. And I think it's damaging for those relationships. So I think don't over expect more from your child at this time of year than you would in every day really will mean that you have better engagement and your children will have better relationships and it will be better for everybody you know and it, when it comes to things like homework is to is to to allow think about what your child needs to do and if they're better talking it than writing let them talk to you about what their answers are and you be a scribe sometimes I used to do that with my own kids so I'd scribe and they'd tell me their story in this beautiful story would come out with all creativity and everything but if i'd say write it down they go once upon a time the end because writing was really difficult so you didn't see all that beautiful creativity was being like <laughs> down because we were trying to write it so find the ways for your child to show their their creativity as well and have fun with it you know i think that's the other thing being a parent's hard work but it's also great fun at the same time Oh, fantastic. And also, often you're right, understanding your child, like what you talked about a business earlier, is like um, sometimes if they don't do things and they sound or they look like they're not listening to you or not following the, the theory, it's not because necessarily they want to ignore you. No. or they, It's just because their brain is wide different. They may not have heard you. They may You need their attention. They may have been just going through a lot of emotion. Instead of creating that unnecessarily stress, have a good time over, over the holidays change your expectations and say you know what i'm gonna make it fun i'm gonna make it really i'm not gonna be bothered by the fact that the child doesn't sit for one hour and uh, looks like it disrespect me no i'm just gonna make it hey are you okay i just just be prepared like as you said mentally to understand it's it's not that they're disrespecting you often it's, it's just that they are different often and they operate in a different way like every human they need their own time they need their own rest and preparation, uh, being vigilant, mindful. You can have a fantastic Christmas and, and uh, holidays by just those minor uh, uh, decisions you make and, and adjustments that starts with us as parents. So we could, uh, and, and this is what gives me a lot of hope and, and inspiration. And, and uh, I'm, uh, I know that a new book on neurodiversity in education is coming out in 2023. Yep. Tell us more about this. 
So I, I wrote with Theo Smith, uh, you know, who, who's a colleague of yours, and we we had a great time writing Neurodiversity at Work, and and I think you know Theo and I are talking about another book as well. But what I wanted to do was think about, and that was about workplaces and and what we need to do in the workplace, which is really important. I also wanted to think about what do we do in education of all sorts. So whether you're in schools, colleges, universities or whether you are actually a teacher training people, right, and thinking about what we need to do. So it was taking the concepts, the language, starting with, I, I like to think about how we change language and how language is used. So I started looking at um, special special educational needs. Why do we use the term special, right? What, what, what we've changed over the time in terms of our history of how we've become more inclusive. So there's a little bit about the narrative of how we've got to today, you know, and why we're using the term neurodiversity in an educational context. We look at things like universal design principles, which we can apply in the workplace, but a lot of the work's been done in education. We're thinking about what are the barriers to learning that stop somebody optimizing their talent? So a lot of discussion about what we can do in terms of classroom layout, accessibility, our approaches, a bit like we're doing for the parents. If we if we stand back and go, why here? Why now? Why with me? Why with me? Not why you. Why with me? What am I doing that's actually encouraging that young person or adult to be successful or is a barrier to them being successful. So we're, we're asking some challenging questions and providing some solutions as well. <clears throat> and we also include in the book, it's with two colleagues, um, Abby Osborne and, and Paul Ellis, who are, have a, had a lifetime experience working in education as well. We're also thinking about teachers. So we're thinking about, okay, you can have neurodivergent teachers. What do we need to think about as well? So we cover a lot in the book. It's coming out, excuse me, one sec. Um, coming out in March. It, um, I'm proud of it. We, we spend a lot of time in thinking about uh, thinking about the theory, but think about practically what can we do in education more broadly. And we think it's going to be useful for not just teachers, but um, trainers, people who are uh, leaders in education as well, to think about how we make our educational systems more neuroinclusive. So lots, lots of information. We hope that it's been laid out in a way that's useful and understandable so people can pluck at the chapters and use them, but lots of practical things and lots of lovely visuals we put in the book as well. Amazing. Well, now you've done neurodiversity at work, neurodiversity in education, fantastic. The ne next one left is neurodiversity at family, you know, how to deal with, you know, at home. So I think uh, if we cover you covering really a quite comprehensive work, education, family, <laughs> I think you'll cover, you'll close the full circle. So uh, yeah. really wish you well. And uh, I can't wait for this to come out. And uh, I know it'll be of, of great value to many. So uh, final question, uh, Amanda, what is your hope for more caring, more uh, a really better world for a more brighter future? I think we have to be compassionate leaders. I think I think that I think it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it to society. It's worth it for organisations. We live in a VUCA world, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and we're continuing to do so. So we are going to need to be compassionate to be able to manage not just only our mental health, but the mental health and well-being of the people we work with 
and our families and society. So I hope that in 2023, we can all take that and think about how we can be more compassionate, non-judgmental, tolerant, um, and empathic. And we can all practice it. We have to keep practicing it, I think, and we have to keep reminding ourselves. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for all the work, for being uh, with us today and for dedicating your time. Wish you well, health and prosperity in all areas of your life in the 2023. And looking forward to the new book and blessings go out to you, your family and your work. Thank you very much, Marion. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you.